The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. Christ is risen. It's an ancient saying. We say it every Easter, sometimes don't know where it comes from. But between the affirmation that Christ is risen and Christ is risen indeed, there's a story. We're going to look at that story this morning in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. It's a story of two strangers who are somewhat bewildered, confused, and despondent traveling on a road. And it's the story of a stranger who pursues them and who proves to be stranger than the strangest of all strangers, Jesus Christ. Let's look at Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. I'm going to read this uh, out loud for us, and when I finish reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. This is God's word. Luke 24, verse 13. Now on that same day... Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, Well, what things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how Foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead 
as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. Because it's, it's, it's almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon, Peter. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. The grass fades and the flower falls, but what we just heard endures forever. It's a, it's a road story, traveling story. We all travel. I was on a, a, a business trip a couple of years ago, flying to uh, Chicago from Los Angeles, taking a group of leaders uh, to a conference. And, uh, you know, cheap hotel, office park kind of a thing. And I, I like to run. That's how, you know, after, I always run, but especially after a trip. Set the alarm clock 40 minutes early, get up and put my goggles on, strap on the old shoes, you know, and, and uh, head out the front door of the hotel. And I don't have a plan, don't need a plan. I just need to run for 35 minutes, clear my head. And so I go straight out for a while and start to get tired, take a right. Start to get tired and you know, I think I'll start to loop back, take a right. And I'm looking for that next right, not finding it, so I, I take it now. And I take another right. And I keep thinking if you take rights, you've got to get back to where you began, Right. T.S. Eliot says the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we start and know the place for the first time. And that's all I was asking. <laughs> but I wasn't recognizing anything. And I kept turning and turning and running farther. I thought, I'll run bigger loops. I'll run smaller loops. An hour and a half and a near marathon later, <laughs> I stopped for directions. <laughs> I am a guy. Yeah, and the conference had already started, and I had the only car keys to our van locked in my room, and boy, the elders weren't real happy with me when I got back to the hotel room. But I was as fit as a fiddle. <laughs> Sometimes we get lost in life, and we may not even know it. We think we know where we are. We think we know where we're headed. But sometimes we, we do know it. You know, sometimes we wake up and we go, think, but thought. Now I'm not so sure. It's just, the landscape looks different to me. I, I'm not sure I know where I am. And, and now that I think a little bit more about it, I'm not sure I know where I'm going. I know where I was going, but not sure I want to go there anymore. And, and now I'm lost. Well, maybe you're the only one who knows it. Maybe you've kept this feeling inside of you, but if you were to admit it to God today, you'd have to say, 
God, in my marriage, I am lost. Oh, God, with this career thing, I've lost my bearings. Or, or I find myself in a place with this dis-ease and I, I'm not sure how to keep journeying on. What I love about this text, the road to Emmaus, is that it's a text for people who are lost. And it's a text in which we see that Jesus doesn't stand there waiting for us to come back. No, he puts on his running shoes in hot pursuit. He's after us today as well. He's after you today as well. You see, there's a, an Easter in Jerusalem by the tomb. But there's a, an Easter on the road away from Jerusalem as well. There's an Easter in the brilliant a sunrise of dawn, but there's a, an Easter in the fading hues of the twilight as well. There's an Easter of new faith and great hope and expectation, discovering Jesus is alive. But there's also a, a road weary, weather beaten Easter in which I can still affirm, even in the midst of my disorientation. Confusion and sadness that Christ has risen indeed. It's a story between those two statements. Christ is risen is the cry of the morning in Jerusalem at the tomb. You know, we get the idea that Motel 6s were a little steep in price for followers of Jesus Christ. And, you know, he's just died, so that might affect the budget. And so they're all staying in a house in Jerusalem. A bunch of them are all crammed in there. And, of course, the ladies are the smart ones. The smell of the men is built up. You know, they say, you know, we're getting out. So they go out in the morning and they take some spices. They're going to go to the tomb and hope that they can somehow get access to the body and do some more embalming. But, you know, the story, they get there and the stone has been thrown away. And the body is gone and they're just these wrappings. Except... There are these two guys who, the, notice, the ladies notice, are really well-dressed. You know, in dazzling white, the text tells us. They fall down on their faces, and, and these two angels say, Why do you look for the living among the dead? For he is risen. And this is the message that they take back to the house. I mean, they go straight back there. They throw open the doors. And all the guys are there. They probably have to wake them up. And they say, Hey, Jesus is risen. And they say, I doubt it. <laughs> they do. That's what they say. Earlier in the verse, uh, verse 11, it says, These words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Wow. These guys get to be Bible characters? And they don't believe stuff like that? What I love about this story is we're way ahead of the Bible characters. We know that this is Jesus walking along. The characters in the story, they don't know. So we know more than people in the Bible at this point in this story. And so these two, we know who they are. They pack up their bags and they say, you know, it's time to go back to Emmaus. We think they're probably married because when Jesus finds them, they're arguing with each other on the road. <laughs> and he says, you know, what are you guys talking about? Well, how could you, how could you, how could you be a, a journeyer or a stranger in Jerusalem like we are and not know? I mean, Jerusalem would swell with these pilgrims. And the reason that they're there 
is because of the Passover feast. It's one of the great feasts, command performance, all of Israel coming to Jerusalem. And, and you know what the Passover feast celebrates, don't you? It's the, it's the Exodus. It's that greatest seminal event in the history of God's people. It's an event that made them a people. Right? They're, they're enslaved in, in Egypt. And God's good intention for creation and the right ordering of human relationship and worship of God have all been defiled and twisted by the Pharaoh of Egypt. And, and God gets sick of it. And the people cry out and he says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring my judgment. And we get this seven plagues. And the last one is going to be the firstborn of every being that's living in Egypt is going to die. Except you can offer a lamb. You can eat this meal and, and you can take the blood and you put it on the doorpost in just this way. And when the angel of death flies over Egypt, you won't be harmed. And I mean, my kids were all excited about Easter last night. Can you imagine the kind of horror and thrill of that night before the Exodus? This is a scary stuff. But it also means maybe we're going to be redeemed. Maybe we're going to be freed. Maybe God at last is going to intervene in my life. And they wake up the next morning and they're looking for Moses. And someone knocks on his door. There's no answer. They open and Moses is dead. Can you imagine the shock, the disappointment? And they say, we thought this guy was going to be like Moses. We thought he was going to redeem Israel, another exodus. He was going to free us from everything that causes despair and pain and brokenness on this planet. And they just killed him. They just killed him. And so they leave town. Heads swimming with lostness. But Jesus pulls alongside. A stranger, the text tells us. Unknown to them. And he engages them in three ways. Same three ways I, I, I believe he engages you and me today if we want Easter hope. Let's look at those three ways. The first thing he does is he says, hey, have you guys looked at the Bible recently? He said, you know, the word Bible just means a book. He says, there's a book that talks about all these things you're talking about. We, we see here in verse 27, he says, beginning with the Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. It's, you know, it's a, it's a Sunday school class. He said, I'm just going to go right through the book and I'm going to tell you, that's about me, that's about me, that's about me. You know the Bible? It's an amazing book. Written over 1,500 years by over 40 authors, many different walks of life, thousands of years of, of, of miles of distribution. It's a collection of writings. But all of them speak with one voice about Jesus. And he goes through the prophets, and this is amazing stuff. 500 years before Jesus is born, there are texts that say you know, where he's going to be born. To whom, which parents, what they'll name him, uh, the circumstances of his life, that, that he will be pierced uh, for our transgressions, way he'll die, that he'll be betrayed for what price, 30 pieces of silver, that he would be buried in the tomb of a rich man. I mean, on and on and on, 300 promises, all fulfilled in one person. So this is the plan, Jesus says. My suffering before glory, that's the plan. And you and I look at the book, and now we've got the New Testament, which is, which is not a, a book of religious mythology. This is a book of people who are eyewitnesses to the most dramatic event in human history that will ever occur. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. It changes the whole thing. 
Just a couple of years later, not generations later, a couple of years later, the Apostle Paul would say, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I handed unto you a first importance, what I had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. They appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, he says. So he goes, don't take my word for it. Check it out. 500 people. This was not a private affair. That's how we can have the greatest movement in human history develop right in the city where we could most easily disprove the resurrection because these people saw him die, but they also saw him rise. Peter said, we don't follow cleverly devised myths when we make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. We have been eyewitnesses of his majesty. John says, we declare to you what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands. See, they're witnesses to Jesus. That's what the book is about. It's a story of his suffering and glory. They go together. And then the next engagement with them is over a meal. And I love this part. I mean, this is good Easter humor. Easter is serious stuff, right? But you see the joy of Luke as he relates the story of Jesus and even Jesus' sense of humor. As he says in the text, he made like he was going to go on. Jesus knows he wants to have a meal with them, but he pretends to keep on going. Why? Because Jesus wants you and me to invite him in. He wants to be invited in, even today, for a meal. As he says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door of their life to me, I will come in and I will eat with them and they with me. Jesus has been eating meals all the way through the Gospels. I mean, that's why Presbyterian, it's a rich tradition, you know, food we eat so well, because Jesus is constantly eating throughout these stories, the gospel, all the time. And what you notice is, he's always eating with the wrong people, right? He just can't get it right. He, all the, you know, the right people always invite him, but no, he goes to be with the sinners. There's this prostitute woman who cries on his feet. There's a tax collector sympathizer with our Roman oppressors, and he wants to eat with that sleazeball. There are two sisters who get into a fight right there in front of him. Do you think you'd have a fight if Jesus came to your house for dinner? <laughs> Jesus is always eating with the wrong people. That's why he came. That's why he came. He comes pursuing you and me to eat a meal, to have a relationship with us. The Bible begins with a meal. Remember that? They eat some fruit that they weren't supposed to eat. And the, and the text, as it's told here in Luke 24, is very similar to that first meal. It says, they took it, and they ate it, and their eyes were open, and they saw. That first meal was a devastating meal. Having eaten that, what they saw was that they were naked, they were alienated from the one person who loved them more than anyone else, their creator, God. And now Jesus wants to sit at a table with these. He wants to take the food and he wants to give it to them. And they eat it and their eyes are open. And all of a sudden, they can see it's all okay. Now I eat a meal with the one person who loves me. And I'm safe with him because he has come to find me. Engages them with a book, with a meal, and then finally, he engages them in a community. Because once their eyes are open, they run back to Jerusalem that very hour, because they can't wait to tell what they have seen. 
And, and they find out that Jesus has been appearing to other people as well, to Peter, to Simon. And so when they walk through the doors, they hear everyone saying, Christ has risen indeed. And they want to tell their story of meeting Jesus on the road and, and the meal. And that's what happens here every Sunday, by the way. And, you know, I, as a, the preacher in the pulpit, I come every Sunday uh, because my heart gets warmed by your story of Jesus. Each and every one of you here could tell a story of Jesus catching up with you. And, and, and that story encourages me. So we, we come together because our hearts burn on the road, but they burn brilliantly together when we gather to worship. We find ourselves, even in the midst of our confusion, doubts, and disillusionment, finding joy and life in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, he's pursuing you, friends, in the same way. He walks beside you to offer you life. Even when you can't understand the pain. There's a little story about that written by Henry Now in a book called Our Greatest Gift in an adaptation. It's about two twins who are in a womb named Spirit and Ego. And Spirit says to Ego, I know you're going to find this difficult to accept, but I truly believe there's life after birth. <laughs> Ego responds, don't be ridiculous. Look around you. This is all there is. Why must you always be thinking about something beyond this? Accept your lot in life, make yourself comfortable, and forget all about this life after birth nonsense. Spirit quiets down for a while, but her inner voice won't allow her to remain silent any longer. Ego, now, don't get mad, but I have something else to say. I also believe that there is a mother. A mother, Ego guffaws. How can you be so absurd? You've never seen a mother. Why can't you accept that this is all there is? The idea of a mother is crazy. You are here alone with me. This is your reality. Now, grab hold of that cord. Go into your corner and stop being so silly. Trust me, there is no mother. Spirit reluctantly stops her conversation with Ego, but her restlessness soon gets the better of her. Ego, she implores, please listen. Somehow I think that those constant pressures we both feel, those movements that make us so uncomfortable sometimes, that continual repositioning and all of that closing in that seems to be taking place as we keep growing is getting us ready for a place of glowing light. And we will experience it very soon. Now I know you are absolutely insane, replies Ego. All you've ever known is darkness. You've never seen light. How can you even contemplate such an idea? Those movements and pressures you feel are your reality. You are a distinct, separate being. This is your journey. Darkness and pressures and a closed-in feeling are what life is all about. You'll have to fight it as long as you live. Now grab that cord and please stay still. Spirit relaxes for a while, but finally she can contain herself no longer. Ego... I have only one more thing to say, and then I'll never bother you again. Go ahead, Ego responds impatiently. Well, I believe all of these pressures, and all of this discomfort, is not only going to bring us to a new celestial light, but when we experience it, we are going to meet Mother face to face and know a joy that is beyond anything we have ever experienced up until now. Luke is very careful not to say that Jesus leaves. What he says is that Jesus, Jesus vanishes from their sight. 
Do you know the difference? Jesus doesn't leave them. And Jesus has no intention of leaving you and me. But he has vanished from our sight. And that's the reason I believe that Jesus comes up to these two in such a cryptic way. And he doesn't, like he says to Thomas, put your hands in the fingers, your fingers in my wounds and say, I'm Jesus. He comes up to them to engage them in the very same way that he wants to engage you today through a book, through an intimate meal, in the company of those who affirm Christ is risen. So that if I say to you, even in the midst of your confusion, that Christ is risen, you know how to reply. Let's pray. We thank you, Jesus Christ, for being so great that you could overcome the bond of death and with it every other thing that binds us. We thank you for being so great in love that you have pursued each and every one of us in this room. And we can't see you, but you are after us and you are with us and you are calling us into relationship with you. Grant the transformation of our lives, even when you don't answer all of our questions. Grant the transformation of this, your creation, for your namesake and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.